With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 51 of 1812 Productions Presents the Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Canal Network. Coming to you live from behind the Chrome microphone of excellence, we have me, James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions. We do not have Ben Casson, my fellow CEO of Dubois, because we'd like those really complicated last names and words. Because currently he decided, rather than spend time with you lovely folks, he is just going to be sick today. Please send all of your hate mail direct line to him. Get well soon, Ben. Since some of us have some sympathy. Hi, guys, it's M.H. Norse. No, 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 no. We, we have two it. M.H.'s this week. Well, can I introduce myself? No, then? no, you Why? cannot, because you are part of this growing whatever on the show, because now the M.H.'s have doubled. We don't have just one. It's no longer just M.H. Norris, Mystery Maven, and Sci-Fi Sorceress. Now it is Sorceress? also... Yes. <laughs> and now it is also the other famous MH of this show, Micah S. Harris, author, Disney show expert, film historian, college <laughs> professor, and award winner. Moral of the story, James is doomed this hour. Mwahaha. <laughs> so, how are you, Micah? Welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me again. I was glad to be here. Yes. And of course, everyone at home, as always, the TVCU crew are a team of crossoverists who devote way too much of their time, 51 hours and counting, to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs, all in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the television crossover universe. Now, as always, what plugs, shameful or shameless or otherwise, do we have today? Would you like to start, Micah? Uh, yeah, my uh, article... Uh, on uh, the unmade sword and sorcery movie of the early 80s, Thongor in the Valley of Demons, uh, is finally out. Um, there was a delay at the printers due to a little thing called the election. Uh, they actually got it off its uh, scheduled uh, release date, but uh, I'm hoping that it should definitely be available off of the Little Shop of Horrors website. And uh, I would imagine, um, you know, coming into comic book shops and so on uh, very soon, if not already on the way. Um, so that's something that's been about six years in coming or more. Uh, so it's finally, um, it's good to finally see it come to to fruition. So that is my, um, my current uh, shameful or shameless plug. And what would you like to pitch to everyone listening? Well, I am going to pitch like a doting mother. Actually, this past week, when you guys get to the recording, we had the anniversary of Doctor Who, and the Time Travel Nexus did a phenomenal job. My entire Doctor Who team of writers, we all came together, we covered all the anniversaries, and I think 
all the articles were well written, well done, and truly celebrate everything that's great about. Would Halo. you like to talk about your Doctor Who writing team? What they all cover briefly? Give them a bit of a pitch and a boost. All right, let's Rag see. on them. Let's if see. you even remember all their names. It's actually one last name I'm sitting here actually mentally going over. Probably mine. No, yours, like, his, I'm one of the three people on the planet that I can actually spell his last name. Um, but we're going to start with Tina DeLucia. Given how many times I misspell my own name, you might be one of two. <laughs> I really might. Tina Marie DeLucia kicked off our day on Wednesday, last Wednesday, with a write-up of An Unearthly Child. And Tina is known as the queen of the black and white era. And did a magnificent job at writing up and telling the story of not only an unearthly child. In fact, the plot was barely touched upon. The, uh, more the focus was on the episode and the struggles and how almost completely and totally screwed Doctor Who was. Not even barely out of the gate good. From there, we went to me and I covered the five doctors. The 20th anniversary special. The 20th special. anniversary special. I was getting there. You just like to cut me off. First of the thing with K-9 last time, and then there's this. It is my favorite pastime, but continue. <laughs> but we covered that. Uh, I, once again, barely touched on the plot. I think I re- ragged a little bit on what Liz Sladen was wearing. Bless you, Sarah Jane, but that was an awful outfit. Um, you could have given me something a little easier to cosplay sometime. Thank you. Mm-hmm. No, that one, that one, if I ever actually do, it's going to be fun. Uh, I talked a little bit about The Return of Susan. I talked... A bit about the infamous bubble wrap dress that Zoe wears in that episode. Yes. And how, for L.I. Who, earlier this month, I actually, with the help of some people, recreated the dress and wore it for one of the days of the convention. And Fraser Hines, who played Jamie, absolutely adored it. And whenever he ran into me, his hand would be on my sleeve popping bubbles all day. It was it was a beautiful thing. Um, then we went... There was two James, actually. I actually had to, like, go on my fingers and count these. Then it was James who covered the dual 25th, the Silver Nemesis and Remembrance of the Daleks, one that should have been the 25th and one that actually was the 25th anniversary special. Yes. So he covered his basis and did both. And it was actually a really fun write-up. I thought you did an excellent job. Especially with the defense of Silver Nemesis, which I think is really unjustifiably hated. I think it's a fun episode. I've seen it several it's times. It's the weakest Ace episode, but it nowhere deserves the degree of hate it gets. No, I mean, it's not, but it's fun. Um, from there, we went to another one of our new writers on the next. Says, Rassilon Pennington, his pen name. Thank you. Really? Is that his pen name? That's what we're talking him into. <laughs> Sorry. His real name, however. William Martin. This is this is a proof that we record this thing live. Um, by some of our reactions, who covered the 35th anniversary of the Infinity Doctors, a book, actually. he is By going- Lance Parkin. Thank you, because I actually don't remember the author. <laughs> Sorry. I knew you didn't. That's why. <laughs> um, he's actually going to be coming on the Nexus once a month or so and giving us a book review, which covers all of our bases now with Doctor Who coverage. I'm really excited. But he came and did a fun, um, fun review. I know, James, you had some thoughts about it i did and you can find my thoughts in the comment section all the more reason to check out william martin's article yes because james provides commentary in the comment section um from there actually james was just making a will sandwich on wednesday because he was on both sides because you came back with 45 there's a quote that's going to haunt will (laughs) sorry will 
Um, he came back with 45, a surprise post that I found hiding out when I was going to approve post for Doctor Who Day. Covering the 45th anniversary special from Big Finish 45. Yes, and how it was supposed to star David Tennant, but that fell through at the last moment, which kind of crimped Big Finish's plans. But it, it's still fun, and it's actually one I have listened to. Um, I say that because even though I feel like I've listened to a lot, I really haven't. But <laughs> I'm getting there. But it was a fun review, and he actually does like highlight and talk about how that was supposed to be Tennant, but ended up not being, and it, it's fun. And, then, and now I will briefly brag on you. And the day closed with Mary Helen Norris's look at the Day of the Doctor, an in-depth look at why it was a pretty good episode on its own right, but as an anniversary was a miserable, insulting failure that failed to live up to the hopes of either classic Who fans or new Who fans. It's really a pretty nice write-up. Uh, I can't take complete credit. I have to give some to Tina because. There was a PowerPoint made, and thoughts came from there, and discussion we that was had from a bunch of people at LA Who, and it really actually got me thinking about the Day of the Doctor and kind of made me sit down and actually make a more objective look at it. And I mentioned uh, briefly, you can go look at more. Like I talk about one of my highlights is actually just the appearance of David Tennant, who I absolutely adore. And and yet he's not even written in character. No, he's written as David Tennant. But unless you're like me and you sit there and kind of obsessively study both the Tenth Doctor and David Tennant, you might not catch that difference because they're so similar. But it's there. Yes. Um. And I believe that's where the day ends. That's where the day ended. And then on Friday we actually gave you a bonus post with James's Big Finish Friday covering one of my absolute favorites um, audio dramas, Light at the End. It's Big Finish is 50th, and to me is the true 50th, that or the five-ish Doctors reboot. reboot. Which, sadly, no one did a write-up for, but look for it next year. Yes, that, that's on my list next year. And unless, Micah, MH, either of the MH squared group, do you, you have anything else to pitch? You didn't pitch anything, but no, nope. I'm good. We went a bit long on Doctor Who, and you talked about a lot of things I've been involved in, so I feel satiated with my plugging. All right. Well, then, if that's all for this part, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with some fun with the MH Squad and, I guess, James. Mike S. Harris is a guest, really, that needs no introduction. He's been on so many times with such great looks at all of the things he has going on that, really, there's nothing left to say. Yes, he is an award-winning author. Yes, he won the 2016 Pulp Arc New Pulp Award, something I can now say without stumbling over it. Took you long enough. Took me long enough. For his novel. Now, this I'm going to stumble over, because it's a bit of a mouthful. Ravenwood, Steps on a Mystery, Return of the Dugpa. A very well-deserved award. He's done multiple other novels, multiple other short stories from a variety of fantastic publishers. He is one of the busiest people in New Pulp who keeps up a consistent high level of quality. I've said it all about him in the past, but today, you've mentioned this a few times before, but today he takes on a new hat, film historian. And he chronicles the tale of one of those lost movies that never quite made it to reality. Now, this article is Lost in Lemuria, Milton's... I'm going to butcher this name. Milton Sabosky and Harley Cokeless on Maid Thongor in the Valley of Demons. I feel better now because I was sitting there reading that last name. I'm like, uh... It's worse than mine. 
I was like, I needed a phonetic <laughs> spelling or something. Now, Micah, could you tell us more about your article? What's it about, your movie and the article? And where can our listeners find it? Yeah. Um, well, I first read about this movie uh, back when I was 17 years old in the late 1970s. And uh, at the time, I was uh, very keen into stop-motion animation. I was doing my own with my Super 8 camera. And, um, of course, you know, one of those young guys that uh, worshipped Ray Harryhausen and Jim Danforth and Willis O'Brien. And um, I came across an article in the uh, magazine Starlog, uh, which was a very big deal at the time when there were no are very few comic book stores, uh, you know, let alone any specialty bookshops related to the science fiction and fantasy genre. Certainly oh, yes. no internet I mean, in 1978. I, yeah, and, I mean, I was uh, I mean, say, big, oh, yes. I mean, okay. Starlog really is impressive looking back, and I'm kind of sorry I missed it because they really did run the best in-depth, behind-the-scenes interviews. Well, yeah, it was a big deal to um, when uh, Walden Books uh, set aside like a corner of their section uh, of their shops uh, to science fiction and fantasy and Hildebrandt brother calendars and things like that. Um, and but of course, you know, the information was was hard to come by uh, much much more than it is today, especially for someone living in uh, Wayne County, North Carolina. And uh, so I read about this uh, movie that was coming out. They had a two-page article on it, which mostly was given to a plot synopsis. But it did have some uh, interesting photos of the animation model, uh, what would have been one of the animation models they were going to use. And so I went out and uh, read the first two books in the Thongor series because... Uh, this was based, going to be based on the works of Lynn Carter, uh, who um, is, I guess, somewhat famous or a little bit infamous. Um, Lynn Carter is really one of the most important people uh, in the modern uh, popularity of fantasy and, and horror. Uh, oh, as an editor, yeah, as an editor, he was bringing things into print that had been out of print, uh, I believe, for some time. Uh, he was, you know, really pushing uh, to get people uh, exposed to the, the old masters and uh, who would rather be would, uh, be obscure authors, perhaps, some of them, uh, if he had not been uh, pushing for the, uh, the, I believe they call it the adult fantasy uh, line. Yeah, the Valentine uh, fantasy line right right and uh, so yeah he he did he did that uh, to which the fandom modern fandom owes him a debt and most people don't even realize it uh, he's a bit controversial though in that along with L. Sprague de Camp um, he was one of the uh, rewriters of uh, Conan the Barbarian's adventures Oh yes, Conan came back into print in the '60s with those great uh, Frazetta covers. Uh, those stories were rewritten somewhat by uh, DeCamp. I don't know how much Lynn Carter actually put into the rewrites, 
But he, um, you know, he actually, I do have it. an answer on that. Okay, um, great. DeCamp did more of the rewrites of the Conan stories, the adaptions, the expansions, and so on, while Lynn Carter most looked them over. But Carter was more responsible for the ones that took, say, uh, Borak stories or Solomon Kane stories or Eric the Red stories, if I'm not completely messing. No, that's a haggard that's character. That's an X-Men. Excuse uh, me. I'm... <laughs> yes, but... Yeah. He would take. He was the one responsible for taking all of these other Howard heroes and then adapting their stories into Conan tales. So that's sort of how they divided the work, from based on my understanding. Well, another thing they would do, um, or at least uh, Carter did once, and I think more than once, was to take plot ideas for his Thongor character uh, and turn those into Conan stories. Oh, yes. And I get into this in my article briefly, is that one of the weird twists in the story of Thungor making it or not making it to the big screen is that one of the episodes in the Schwarzenegger Conan movie is actually uh, based on a Thungor story that Carter rewrote as a Conan story. And uh, it's just a little snippet of the actual tale, uh, but it's the scene in the in the Schwarzenegger Conan movie where he gets his sword down there in the in the crypt or the tomb, and that turns out to be, I believe, the only actual narrative episode other than the crucifixion of Conan, which came from uh, Howard's uh, "A Witch Shall Be Born," uh, that actually made it into the Conan movie, and one of those was supposed to be Thongor. Uh, so for just a few seconds there, you can almost you know squint your eyes and believe that you are seeing Thongor. Up there on the big screen, uh, yeah. portrayed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. But uh, okay. but anyway, Carter, yeah, Carter was uh, like I said, that's one of the controversial things about him. Um, and uh, but again, a very important figure, uh, ultimately, if now obscure. But he wrote himself. Uh, he himself was an author, and uh, you know he was perhaps the pure pasticher, or at least attempted to be. Uh, and that, uh, you know, the, the idea that his writing didn't really have any personality or, or vitality or snap to it of his own, which in a Very sense true. was what he was trying to achieve. He was trying to achieve, uh, you know, summoning up the authors. Uh, he was pastiching. And so I know that G.K. Chesterton said that, uh, that a artist uh, should be judged uh, not by what he should have done, but what did he mean to do, and did he do it? And uh, by that standard, Lynn Carter is a screaming success, <laughs> as far as it goes. That is uh, true. Yeah, maybe he, he did have a ride, remarkable but... capability for losing his own style in Lester Dent, Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I don't know if you ever how much of his own style he actually had <laughs> that existed. I mean, reading his Anton Zarnak stories is probably the closest thing to the true quote-unquote Lynn Carter style, and it is the most bland, hard to get through, I am writing words, there is no style <laughs> sort of tale. <laughs> right, well, it's just, uh, I understand that his, some of his... Um, Doc Savage pastiche character. Uh, yes. Prince something or whatever. Um, Prince Arkham. Uh, 
nemesis of okay, evil. That's what okay, yeah, so that, that was actually supposed to be kind of interesting, uh, they, that he was actually there starting to do a bit of a Philip Jose Farmer kind of thing. But They're I've never very unusual. You, yeah. you should pick them up. They're interesting enough, especially since you can get most of the series for pennies on the dollar. Anyway, I believe you uh-huh. had a question to ask him, H. Yes. Um, well, someone special did the art for this article. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, the, the start of the article? The art in the article. Oh, the art in the article. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, well, wow, yeah, it comes from various places. Uh, there is a great uh, Bruce Tim inside front cover, uh, that full color that's done, that is of illustrating, uh, you know, accompaniment, accompaniment mean <laughs> my article, even though, you know, my article doesn't show up till well into the issue. But that is uh, uh, Bruce Timm's rendition of Thongor and uh, the Princess Sumaya, who is Thongor's Deja Thoris. Yep. And uh, Tim, of course, is a you know very well-known animator, uh, one of the brains behind the 1990s Batman the Animated Series that I think some people think is the best Batman has ever been done. And um, so it was just a real thrill to, to get him you know, to do that. I was hoping, you know, for just a black-and-white spot illustration. And then I asked the publisher, you know, I said, well, see if he'll do a full-page color. You know, I mean, what, what does it hurt to ask? Yeah. And uh, he asked, and sure enough, uh, Bruce Tim was uh, interested in doing it. And I know he has an interest in that kind of material, uh, you know, from his own art and uh, oh, yes. from a short uh, Conan story he did uh, back way back when Dark Horse uh, had it, at least initially. Um, he did a beautiful story, beautifully, just a little short thing. Uh, but, you know, beautifully, beautifully done. And interestingly, speaking about Lynn Carter as a writer, uh, Bruce, Bruce Tim had, uh, understand, had, was going to sit down and read, you know, the, the Thongor books I guess, <laughs> before he drew. And then, and then just said, uh, he couldn't do it. They were written so poorly. <laughs> he said he couldn't make it through it. So, uh, you know, uh, and that's true. Again, you know, Carter's pro style. Um, my favorite thing that Lynn Carter wrote is where he said something along the lines of, he phrased it as, she lifted her proud head proudly. <laughs> <laughs> that made it into print, you know, like, holy cow. But, um, but anyway, fortunately well, I mean, every me, time something like that makes it into print, they just didn't a have bad a James. writer gets their ring, gets their wings. I was going to say they just well, didn't have James because he doesn't let me get away with that kind yeah. of stuff. That's but why the thing about nice it for me, yeah, I was fortunate that uh, when I started, when I read the the first couple Thongor books, I was a teenager. Uh, my critical faculties had not really developed, and uh, I enjoyed them. You know, I mean, they they were fun. Uh, they were enjoyable reads for me. I'm glad I didn't have things tripping me up because I, you know, obviously they made uh, something of an impression on me. Um, but uh, you were asking me how the I think how the article came to be, and uh, I I did not hear anything about it for forever after that Starlog article, and 
things were coming out about it, but I didn't have access to that information. Uh, it wasn't always easy to get a copy of uh, magazines uh, like a Cine Fantastique. Uh, that's uh, you know it was a really high quality magazine. It went to a lot more in depth material than Starlog. Um, so I didn't know. And then so finally I decided I'm going to find out. And by this time, like three decades have passed, and we have the Internet, and so I was able to start uh, hunting people down to quench my knowledge and, uh, or quench my desire for knowledge, and, uh, and I did. Uh, started about six or seven years ago. Uh, okay, that goes part of the way towards answering one of my questions, which is how were you able to get in contact with everyone? You managed to find ear or email typing fingers, at least, of some very impressive people. How do you make friends and influence people? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I would that it were so. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I'm just, uh, one thing is that, you know, I'm very fortunate that people have taken pity on me. Um, I went to... Uh, pity is the, the grand motivator. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the first person I got in touch with uh, was a guy named uh, Tony McVie, or Anthony McVie. He's still active in the special effects business. Um, I don't know how I found him. Like I said, it's been several years. I don't know how I found his um, email address, but he was the guy who was mentioned and quoted in that Starlog article uh, who was sculpting that animation model. And okay. so, yeah, so I was able to get in touch with him, and he turned out just to be super nice. And uh, at the time that I show you how far this goes back, uh, when I first initiated contact with him, he was working on the Jim Carrey Christmas Carol, uh, okay. you know, which wouldn't be re- yeah. wouldn't be released until the, till the following December. <laughs> and so he was working on that, and he's just really nice and. Uh, so he was the one that started me, you know, going, um, and I found, um, uh, the, the agents of, uh, Harley Cokeless, who lives in England, his agency, and, uh, I got in touch with him through them, uh, initially, and, um, you know, I just, uh, I would send queries out, and, um, these people were just, Really nice, and you know it's been some time since the events happened, but they were you know good to pass on what they could remember. Uh, Jim Danforth, uh, the uh, twice Academy Award nominated uh, special effects man, uh, who was an important piece of the Thongor, uh film saga, uh, I was able to get through him through a man named Neil Pettigrew. Uh, who put together the Encyclopedia of Stop Motion Animation. And Neil was kind enough to forward, uh, you know, my queries to Jim Danforth, who was then nice enough to answer them back. Uh, there's a picture of Jim Danforth in the article. Uh, and uh, also, uh, one of the things that, that turned up at the very end, practically, was that the publisher, uh, I guess, you know, mentioned... Uh, to another writer or, or whatever, he became aware of what we were coming out with, and he was like, uh, "Yeah, you know, I own a pre-production painting by Jim Danforth for that Thogor movie. Yeah, you want to use it?" 
Oh. <laughs> so, sure enough, yeah, we've got a, a painting of uh, a Danforth dead of a, of a ship, of one of the, in Fongor's world, there are these flying airships, one of them flying over this, you know, landscape. Um, That's fantastic. So that, you know, that, yeah, that worked out very well, and that was, you know, something that came up toward, uh, toward the end. So, um, you know, then uh, uh, Tony McVie again uh, got me in touch with um, a guy, a gentleman named Anthony Pratt, uh, who turns out to be uh, Boris Karloff's like nephew. It's like he's his okay. third crate nephew or something, huh. yeah. And, and I didn't know that for forever, but I knew he had done set design for Excalibur uh, and then another John Boardman film, Zardoz, uh, which we were talking about, or you were talking about comics briefly. You know there is a Superman villain, right, that's based on yes. John Connery's looking Zardoz, <laughs> yes. Of all villains yes. to base it on. Um, okay. So, uh, but I don't know that Pratt had anything to do with that. And then he volunteered to get me in touch with the director, uh, whom I've been trying. I've been sending emails to and lengthy emails, two or three, and I wasn't getting anywhere hardly. And then uh, Mr. Pratt, you know, kindly just did mention, "Well, I'll stay in touch with the uh, director." And uh, next thing I knew, I had an email in my queue from the director, Harley Copeland. And Very nice. so I was able to interview him from, from there, yeah. Okay. If this movie had been made, what would its impact have been? For instance, this is a stop-motion, heavy, very 1970s-style fantasy movie. What do you think its impact would have been, and how do you think it would have fared in a post-Star Wars world? Um, that's a good question, uh, because uh, the way they were going they were, you know, lining up to come out in almost the immediate wake of Star Wars or The Empire and The Empire Strikes Back. Um, the way that Milton Sabotsky talked about the film and how he wanted to, you know, develop it was very much in the spirit of what George Lucas did in the first Star Wars movie, you know, which was a lot of action, you know, a lot of action, things moving, exciting things happening, colorful things happening larger-than-life things going on. And so it was very much in the spirit uh, of the Star Wars, first Star Wars movie. Um, Sabotsky was really very forward-thinking at this time. Um, even before Star Wars, he was thinking about what today we would call a franchise with Thongor or a series, you know, uh, for the next 10 years. And at that point, no one knew if the you know the next Star Wars movie was going to continue or kill the Star Wars experience, but Sabotsky was already thinking that way. Um, you know, in terms of what kind of impact would have it, it had, um, I think a lot of that would have depended on uh, the cast. Uh, Thongor as written you know, is, is not that exciting a guy. Uh, you know, he's sort of out of central casting, as I say, uh, for a barbarian. And, of course, you know, this is what Carter was striving for, you know, if you want to call it that. But <laughs> that's what he was going for. But I've seen, you know, like in some of the recent Marvel movies, 
how the right actor, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, Cumberbatch, is that his last name? The, yes. The new Doctor Strange? Yeah. Yes. yes. Right. You know, how, how he has made, you know, Doctor Strange, Stephen Strange, so much more interesting and fun than he ever was in a comic book. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. did the same thing with Tony Stark, you know, livened him up. And, and and so if you'd had the right actor, that would have helped. But I think what would have hurt it uh, more than anything, and, you know, somewhat frustratingly, this was one of the people I was just did not get in touch with. Uh, there, there were two things, uh, you know, given that Milton Sabotsky had passed away a long time ago, uh, that I, that I wish I could have had for my article information. One was to see a copy of the script, you know, and be able to read that. And the other is, was to talk to the guy who was going to be taking over the stop motion after Jim Danforth. Uh, now with Jim Danforth, you know, it would have been excellent. Um, but the gentleman's name was Barry Leaf, and the animation he was familiar with was children's programming animation, you know, like Paddington Bear kind of stuff or whatever, or <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or over here in the States, you know. And um, I don't know that he was really in a good place uh, to um, to have pulled off, you know, what what they needed to do. And um, in the article, you can read that uh, one of the special effects-related guys says as much. And um, so it also sort of came out through uh, one of the gentlemen uh, who gave us some information who was there. He wasn't working on Thongor. That had been why he was hired to work uh, with the Milton Sabotsky Sword and Sorcery Productions. Uh, but he ended up, you know, developing, uh, uh, working on some development for another stop-motion movie they were going to do called King Crab. Uh, are you familiar with King Crab? Apparently it's a series of books of science fiction novels. You ever heard of King Crab? No. No, I don't believe so. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> no. Well, anyway, uh, Alan Friswell uh, is his name. Um, and uh, he's a, a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he had, you know, he had sent in, wrote him a letter when he found out about Thongor and was wanting to work on it, and they got back in touch with him and said yes, but he actually never did much really with Thongor, uh, or anything with Thongor at all, but he was working on King Crab, but he was around the studio at that time, you know. And uh, he said that he felt that uh, Sabotsky was really pretty naive uh, about what he was getting into. Uh, that he wasn't as, you know, he wasn't really prepared as he should have been. Yes, that and, very much uh, seemed the case. Yeah, he, um, you know, it was so, you know, if it had gone off with Jim Danforth in it, with it, uh, even if it had not been the hit Sabotsky wanted to be, um, you know, it would still be popular today among, you know, special effects and animation fans. Uh, to see, you know, all that Jim Borth animation. There's not all, really an awful lot out there. Uh, but to see that film, you know, it may have some fondness for me. You know, people, um, you know, even get fond over what? Some movie, Jared Sin, Metal Storm or something. or uh, You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so, yeah. 
middle four, you know, these these kind of eighty movies or eighties movies yeah. that, uh, yeah, and you know, like um, you know, Sinbad and the Tiger. I mean, they get picked up by TBS and shown repeatedly, <laughs> or, yes. or no, Clash of the Titans. That's the one I'm thinking about, Clash of the Titans. So, yeah. uh, I, I think that if Dan Forth had stayed on it, uh, then there would be really no reason. Uh, that it should not have been at least as popular as Clash of the Titans, which, you know, comes out post-Star Wars, uh, is stop-motion. And, um, you know, and of course, also, interestingly, it's the last film Ray Harryhausen did. Um, and, uh, but at that time, if it had come out uh, with Dan Forth, I think it, I think it might have did okay. Um, uh, and would have its fans to this day. Uh, they had a good budget, uh, which sounds minuscule to us in our day and time, $7.5 million. But uh, George Lucas brought the first Star Wars in at just like $4 million, <laughs> you know. And Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger was even lower. So that was an excellent budget to have uh, at that time to be making a stop-motion animation movie. Um if he had known about what I consider the third generation of stop-motion animators, people like uh, Dave Allen, Phil Tippett, uh, those those folks, um, then you know he would have probably had a better chance uh, in producing something uh, in terms of the special effects, you know, in terms of quality. But how Barry Leaf would have turned out, you know, nobody knows. Um, but I do feel that doing you know, kid animation with puppets and all that, uh, probably not as complex as trying to convey a sense of a living creature, you know, that is interacting with people in a shared, you know, shared space and time. Um, and, you know, getting that sense of, of life and, and all that larger-than-life element, too. I, I don't know that he would have been prepared, but... I would have loved to have spoken to him. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but I you know, tried uh, to yes. get in touch with him, but we right. no luck. So One last question so, yeah, about Bongor, and then we're going to jump into Frequency Affair. Okay, so, great. Briefly, Subtotsky had a very interesting set of influences. He worked on the Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies, which really seemed to be a perfect example of his storytelling sensibilities, as little dialogue as possible, streamline, action, and idolized George Powell. He seemed to particularly idolize the or the earlier fantasy-heavy George Powell. So, not really a question, but feel free to comment on that. I thought that was interesting enough to bring up. Well, um, yes, apparently Sabotsky was in love uh, with the idea of parring, you know, dialogue down to almost nothing. Um, and one article he was, you know, uh, talk about how proud he was that in the Joan Collins uh, that character uh, uh, is still in practice when even Joe Collins was pre-dynasty um, but she is in the adaptation of All Through the House the E.C. Har story uh, and uh, Sabotsky's Tales from the Crypt uh, where they took the certain E.C. stories developed them. and this is the one where you had the serial killer dressed as Santa Claus going around. And uh, then he starts trying to get in Joan Collins' house, and she's battling to keep him out. And then finally her little girl lets him in. Says, oh, Mama Santa Claus is here. 
<laughs> so uh, that uh, that was an episode that he said, you know, got down. Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, that episode got down to really no dialogue. And he was very pleased with it. Uh, he mentioned a longer story of the skull that they had uh, adapted from uh, the Robert Block story starring Peter Cushing as a collector of occult items. The skull is the skull of the Marquis de Sade. And he talked about how, you know, the end of it went on for a long time with no dialogue. And so um, that was kind of his dream thing, uh, you know, to get something moving like that with very little dialogue. He felt that characterization scenes and uh, love scenes and all this sort of thing got in the way of the story. And so, uh, you know, the unfolding plot. Um, those type of things, you know, typically need dialogue. Uh, and so he wasn't uh, interested in that. Um, so, yeah, he, uh, he, he wanted to trim that out. That was part of, again, his aesthetic, uh, his sense of action moving forward, uh, the story moving forward at all times is sort of what, what you get. And what was the second part of that statement? Said there was something else other than his... Um, just guy. about how much he idolized George Powell. Oh, George Powell. Yeah, he uh, he apparently, you know, according to this one mention in a Starburst article I referenced, um, you know, seemed to like the comparison with, with George Powell. And... Uh, the idea that the pal, you know, like himself, he could relate to pal because he said pal had all these great ideas but had trouble getting money, you know, to realize them. But Sabotsky, at that period, I think he was really wanting to have a, a major career change, not out of the movie business, but in the kinds of movies he made. Uh, you know, he was wanting to have more uh, family-friendly uh, fantasy, you know, type stories um, that would be, you know, come under the umbrella of, you know, for the whole family. Um, and he felt that Pal had done that successfully, and of course, Pal, I guess, had. Um, although Pal's movies do have <laughs> talking in them, uh, they do have love stories in them, uh, and uh, yet, you know, Pal, uh, wholesome entertainer. Um, and uh, lots of stop motion, or at least it's, he was no stranger to stop motion animation. And you look at a movie like uh, the, the Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, uh, based on the Charles Dumont story. And uh, the Seven Faces of Dr. Lau is just it's a most incredible movie. Um, and one, again, that didn't do well at the box office. Uh, but it's it's got a lot going on in it. Um, and uh, what it has to say about life and living and very positive and upbeat. And it's not that Sabotsky had been, you know, doing porn before that or anything like that. Uh, you mentioned the Doctor Who movies. Uh, you know, he was very much aimed at, at children. Uh, the Peter Cushing Doctor Who, of course, has nothing to do with Gallifrey. Um, of course, nobody knew, nobody knew anything about Gallifrey at that point, I don't think, and Doctor Who's history was so early when the Daleks caught on and were such a hit. Um, but, you know, he, Doctor Who's just a, you know, a funny old man scientist, you know, tinkering with his TARDIS and 
uh, you know, going through time and, and then encountering the Daleks. And a big treat, you know, for audiences back in the early 60s was to see a Dalek in color. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think they had them, you know, painted the different colors and, and played that up and that excitement. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so that's good, you know, family stuff, wholesome stuff. And even the things he did, like the anthology movies, like I was talking about the one, the Joan Collins episode from Tales from the Crypt, uh, Vault of Horror. Um, you know, he had a restraint in those stories. Uh, one that I was particularly fond of, one of those movies that I was really fond of as a kid was Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. And, um, you know, I could see that movie as a kid and get scared and weirded out, but it was also, it was fun, you know, fun stuff. And so I think uh, that, you know, he was really wanting to turn that way even more so than the movies he had, had been making. Uh, more, the, what was really fueling it was the breaking up of Amicus Productions, which Amicus, ironically, means friends or friendly or something in Latin. And that's not how they ended, ended with his, uh, he and his partner. And so he broke away and started Sword and Sorcery Productions. Um, but, again, you know, I, I think he was wanting to be more of the kind of filmmaker that Powell was. That uh, he wanted to okay. give something, you know, wholesome and clean. And Which, yeah. ironic, the irony there, too, is that George Powell was turning to make a, um, a racy movie at that time. <laughs> yeah, George yes. Powell is going to be doing a film, uh, The Disappearance, which I guess is a, a known science fiction novel. And uh, so that's kind of a bit of a, a twist there. Okay, in our final moments, we're going to move into talking about the frequency of fear, and we may need to pick it up in the next episode. We'll see how things go. But your short okay. story, Frequency of Fear, really expands upon your use of Dugpas and all of your mythology you've introduced in Becky Sharp and Ravenwood, though I believe it actually came out significantly before Ravenwood. It, it significantly expands on that and also on your use and adaption of the Twin Peaks mythology. Could you give us a refresher on what this mythology is and how you use it? Well, uh, well, the the mythology um, goes back to um, a, a notion, an Eastern notion that I learned of through Twin Peaks, uh, known as the, the Black Lodge and the White Lodge, and then the Dugpas. Uh, I believe they are actually, as I've researched it, uh, red caps. Sorry, red caps, yellow caps. Um, these these things that, uh, that I thought were fiction. Uh, coming through uh, Talbot Mundy's writing uh, in his uh, great book, The Devil's Guard. Uh, I highly recommend that book. Uh, that, that's great. He was a great writer in terms of being able to put you in a place, you know. And uh, he gets into that. And apparently someone on the Twin Peaks cast was familiar with it because one of the villains... Uh, and Twin Peaks has a line that's almost an exact quotation from the Talbot Monday book. Um, behind that was uh, Theosophy. Uh, but behind Theosophy, uh, I believe these notions, at least of Dugpas, are something that's based in the real world. Uh, they, they first appear in the 14th century, and uh, they basically, the word I understand means wizard or sorcerer. And... Um, 
and you know, there would seem to be a, you know a connection between them and, and particularly the Black Lodge. Um, so that's where I, I learned of that. Um, what I wondered about in watching Twin Peaks was, you know, how did this information get from India, you know, to existing among the Native Americans uh, in the you know, Pacific, you know, Northwest? How did that happen? And so I didn't really get into this in the frequency of fear itself, but it was in my in my head that basically, you know, they brought it over the land bridge with them, uh, when the precursors to modern Native Americans, uh, you know, crossed over way back when. Uh, they brought this this knowledge uh, uh, with them and this belief with them. Uh, in my story, uh, they they end up in what's now Florida, and they uh, basically. Uh, the idea from Twin Peaks was that the Black Lodge entities fed off of pain and suffering. Um, that uh, that was their, their food. And, um, and, of course, in Lynch's stuff, it comes out in the form of cream corn, <laughs> which is really kind of, kind of odd. Um, I mean, what else would pain and suffering and fear look like? Well, that's true. Uh, cream corn is pretty scary. Uh, but what I did in my story was to actually, I wanted to do a homage to uh, the monster subgenre of evil plants. <laughs> and so um, in my story, what happens is that a, uh, uh, a, meteor, a meteor, actually a piece of a planet, um, that there was once in space a planet uh, of plants that fed on fear. And uh, because as plant life and not animal life, they couldn't generate it. And there were bovine-type alien creatures uh, that they could, you know, that they could uh, inspire fear and pain out of, and they fed off of it. But they had to have animals to do it. Uh, then the planet exploded, and uh, a good-sized chunk of it hit in Florida, where the dopers were. And there, and here I was taking a, uh, uh, a page from uh, both uh, Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space uh, and also the uh, Philip Jose Farmer uh, extension of Iron Castle, uh, which was that, you know, the alien plant life there, that what was with that uh, in that uh, meteorite begins to terraform the Indian Reservation. And so sentient plants that feed on fear uh, begin to emerge uh, there. And the local Native American population develops a relationship with them. And the plants actually work with them. Uh, I mean, I did some studying into plants, man. I thought I would, but I found out that there are plants that mimic the appearance or the smell of bad-tasting plants uh, so that animals won't eat them. Uh, and, and like there's some plants that they're, uh, they can if they start secreting a smell or something that will draw bees, you know, to, to basically like stinging you, so you lay yeah. off the plant. And uh, just wild, you know, wild stuff like that. Like, but with mine, you know, they're, in my story, they're using it. So they're like, uh, 
the, uh, the plants that are mimicking bad tasting plants. Uh, they will circle the Native American gardens on the reservation, you know, to keep the animals away. And, uh, but, of course, there is a price. And uh, there are plants and feeding on fear. Uh, the lesser ones can do with things like a bird being scared to death or, or whatever. But the others demand uh, human fear. And so to keep that relationship going deep in the woods of the Indian Reservation, uh, where the meteorites land, and there's some very tall ancient trees. And um, the Douglas participate in the rituals of, of uh, uh, dealing, you know, summoning um, from within unfortunate individuals their pain and, and sorrow uh, to feed the trees, uh, among other other things. But of course, they're Douglas, so they're you know adept at it. <laughs> So, yes. um, so that's kind of the you know the basic uh, the basic backstory uh, to that. So yeah, yes. there's um, yeah. And one last question before we close for this episode: Where can our readers find the story? Uh, the listeners? frequency of okay, yeah, the frequency of fear uh, is available on uh, Amazon uh, for as a Kindle only uh, for a mere ninety nine cents. Um, and really, at that and, price, uh, you can't afford not to read it. <laughs> no. no. And there are lots of monster tie-overs. Uh, you know, like I say, there's, I don't just tie over plants, but other movie and literary uh, references to people who have dealt with fear. Um, you know, that have dealt, dealt with fear. Uh, for example, there's a, an old Boris Karloff movie called The Fear Chamber. And uh, so that's, actually, you know, ties in with my story uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a different kind of tale, I think, and uh, uh, basically what leads into it is a, a, a Frenchman um, from and their equivalent of the Secret Service or spies has come looking for someone, um, a criminal, who was an expert in gaslighting people and scaring them to death. Uh, who is slip oh, yes. free.
Noir. Join us next week as the MH Squad reunites. Oh yeah, I guess we're also going to have that guy with the obnoxiously hard to pronounce last name. Oh, yeah, he'll, he'll be there too. But it's the MH Squad, the more important part. As we wrap up this week, yeah. we want to remind you all about a very, very important crossover event that's going to be on TV. For you guys, it will have started last night. For us, it's still a couple days off. But the Arrowverse four-part crossover featuring Supergirl, Flash, Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow are all going to join up for a giant Fortnite event that I've been looking forward to for months, so make sure you listen. And we want to thank our sponsor, accidentally bumping the mute button on your microphone, which leads to awkward, long pauses. Think of it as a chance to memorize our theme song. A special thanks to Robert Ronsky Jr. for starting us on this journey, as well as the Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all of us, and you make this possible. Remember to subscribe and rate our show on iTunes. It makes all the difference. And as always, everything happens somewhere, even when your mic is muted. Good night. See you next time. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.